Hey, I'm Allison Hare, and welcome to Little Left of Center, the podcast that interviews culture changers that are reshaping our world and breaking new ground. On today's episode, I sat down with Father Dennis Dorner Jr. He is a young Catholic priest in Atlanta, and boy, did we have a lot to talk about. And I found him to be down to earth, really thoughtful and thought provoking, passionate, and above all, refreshingly authentic. And personally, it gave me so much to reconsider about Christianity and my own faith. And I'm deeply grateful for this chance to step into his world for a moment and share it with you. Please enjoy. Hello. Welcome. Thanks very much. (laughs) We have got Father Dennis Dorner Jr. Yeah. Since there's only one Father Dennis and the other (laughs) father of mine that is Dennis, we just kind of... So sometimes I use the junior if it's something that's involved with like with the archdiocese specifically, so it eases confusion. But I'm looking at you and you're like around my age, you're younger than I am, and you've got long hair. It's um, mind boggling to me that I'm calling you father. Yeah, it throws a lot of people off. In in some ways, that's really intentional. Um, I I am big on disarming people based on appearance alone. And there's such this typical image of a priest that is, you know, really clean cut and refined beard and or if no beard at all. I mean, there was a long time where Roman Catholic priests weren't allowed to have beards. And so I kind of like to push those those image stereotypes and go, no, that's that's not the point. It's what are we doing? What are we saying? How how are we loving? My father was raised Catholic. Um, I was raised Protestant. My father is uh, from Lebanon. Okay. And he got to meet with Father Graz, who Very is cool. the, the Monsignor. Yes. Um, and really liked him. And he's like, I want to go to your church. I want to go there. And so we, we went to church. We sat in the front row. And I look up and I see this long-haired, young <laughs> <laughs> father doing the homily. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. So I immediately started Googling you. <laughs> As I'm sure probably a lot of people in your congregation do. And uh, I was just fascinated. And I'm fascinated by the church, which is the Catholic Shrine of the Immaculate Conception in downtown Atlanta. And if you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it is the oldest church in Atlanta. In Atlanta, that's correct. Yeah. It's a beautiful structure. And and if you need me to put an echo on your microphone so you feel more comfortable, like (laughs) preaching in these huge churches. Um, <laughs> this very echoey. Yeah, no, kind of thing. I actually prefer no echo if ever possible. <laughs> so yeah, no. And so I, I remember looking at you and it took me a few minutes to kind of dial in as I'm sure is common. Sure. And I'm like, wow, he's got a really powerful message Thanks. and you're a great speaker. And when I started the podcast, I had this idea that I wanted to interview, um, religious leaders because and not necessarily on the doctrine sure. of what they preach but how they're able to communicate and move a community that what a power what a gift to be able to do and then as i started preparing for this interview and i was so excited i couldn't sleep and i just had so many questions because of my own questions sure over religion oh you know? absolutely yeah so i'm so grateful to have you here um i'm so interested for so many reasons and i thank you for being here but i'd love to know how in the world did you get here <laughs> what did faith look like growing up in your household you know we i grew up in a, in a 
in a typical Catholic family. We used to go to mass every Sunday. Um, there's four siblings in my family, or four kids in my family. Uh, there's two boys and two girls. Um, we did, I mean, it was a typical Catholic family. We went to Catholic schools for a decent number of years. Um, but mass was always a staple. That was just kind of one of those things that always was there. And even when I went off to college, I made it to mass every week. In fact, I used to bring my friends with me to come to mass. Um, why? It's not that I loved that church so much. It's not that I was really fond of the priest. In fact, I can't even tell you the priest that was there at the time. Um, but there was something about recentering yourself with mass every single week that I was like, you're encountering God. You're, you're meeting the divine once a week. And no matter what, when you do that, it's, it's an opportunity to kind of look back at yourself and, and it's a spiritual looking in the mirror. Where am I? What am I doing? Am I, am I moving based on my own wants? Am I doing what's best for me? And that knowledge has always been very strong in me in terms of knowing that there is a God and having faith that there's a God. How did you know? When did you know? Yeah, I, I, you know what, that, that actual moment of true recollection, I remember going on a number of different retreats when I was in high school and being incredibly moved by those retreats. And, and I was seeing my peers and they're just kind of like, this sucks. And I'm like, yeah, the retreat kind of sucks, but like you're encountering <laughs> God, like that's a good thing. And so I was always able to look past the mediocrity of the presentation because the divine is so much bigger than that. You seem to have such a strong conviction. Then yeah. why you? Why not everybody? I don't know. Why I you? Mean, why me? Honestly, I, I, I can think of a lot of people who would probably be uh, better suited to it, but there's this, just this sense of calling. I remember, I, so I, it wasn't always, uh, you know, I... I would lived in the real world beforehand. I was a restaurant person from the time that I was 15 into my early 20s. I didn't get out of that until I realized, like, I'm never going to have a healthy relationship in terms of dating and, and just my hours were weird. And I was a workaholic as it was. My my work was always my life. Um, and, and that had an impact on relationships as well. And so I was like, come on, what what are you doing? I got into banking to get out of that. And um, why banking? It, it's funny. I was working the bar one night, and there were a couple execs that that came in, and um, and I, my brother in law was already working for for Bank of America at the time, and I was like, you know what, I can. <laughs> this is horrible. I can do what John does. Not meaning like that that John was uh, a lacking person, but just like I recognize that I could talk to people too. I could do sales. It's not a problem for me. And so having these guys there um, that night, I just I, I fed them lots of drinks and took good care of them because I knew that they worked for the bank. And I actually got them set up with a hotel that was back behind. And, um, and, it, and it ended up getting me an interview. I came back the next day, brought them my resume. I polished it up that night after I you know, had gone home from my bar shift. And I was like, I got to get out of this. And I ended up working in interviews. And I did sales for about six months as a personal banker. And then I got moved up into management um, and I was an assistant bank manager and focusing on operations, which is not my wheelhouse at all. Um, but I was able to train people very well into how do you sell? How do you motivate people? How do you engage the human person? How do you listen for what people actually need? Not to sell them credit cards that they didn't need, but you know, if, if there's a family that's constantly overdrawing their checking account, like mm. get them a savings account and put a hundred or $200 in there so that they have that cut that cushion. It, then you get a, an account, an additional account. You make it worthwhile. And so, like, I could believe in what we were doing if I was doing the right thing. Um, unfortunately, I was serving in a really uh, affluent part of Atlanta. And so, like, the mortgages wasn't a problem at the time because I was in Alpharetta. And so that's when Alpharetta was booming and Johns Creek was becoming what it is. So I, I had enough 
of the the sales and the money part of it and i realized like there was something missing and so i got back involved with youth ministry at the time and in doing that youth ministry i was like this is what feeds my soul this is what not that i like teenagers teenagers are are, are really challenging um is a nice way of putting it um and, and honestly it's the most dormant ministry that you do you're planting seeds and hoping that sometime at some point mm. those will take root because a teenager will look at you and you'll go why did you do that and they will look at you and say, I don't know. And they are not lying. Their frontal lo- cortex <laughs> is not fully developed yet. Like that frontal lobe is not fully matured. And so they honestly don't know that decision-making center isn't there. And so it's a hard ministry. But the ability to be there for, for families when the family was struggling, um, to be able to to listen to these kids when they were struggling. I had a nonverbal uh, kiddo um, who was actually older. He was he was like 19, but his, developmentally he was behind because he was nonverbal. But he used computers. And so I was able to talk to that guy um, by way of instant messenger. And that was where the beginning of technology to minister really made took root for me. There are plenty of people who can't communicate that way. And so that idea of digital media, and this was in the early 2000s. So internet was just kind of becoming what it what mm. it is now. And um, but it's interesting. And so I, I at that point, um, one day I was having breakfast with my dad and I was working at the bank and I was doing really well. I was getting awards for being a top performer. I was making the money that I wanted to be making for the first time in my life. Um, but I was restless and my dad looked at me and he goes, you know why you're restless? Cause he knew I was discerning a vocation of the priesthood. I'd started thinking about it when I was 17. It was like, wow. Oh hell no. Um, <laughs> and I pushed it away. And so at this point I'm, I'm 25 years old and I'm like, I don't want to deal with what you're saying. I, I don't. Ultimately, I ended up having a, a really beautiful conversation with Archbishop Gregory. He invited me and sat down with me, and he's no longer in Atlanta. He just got moved to Washington, D.C. But at the end of our conversation, and where he let me air my grievances with the institutional church, and, and we talked about love and relationship and all kinds of other great things, he said, you're the kind of troublemaker I'm looking for. Would you be one of my priests? And it was like the voice of God asking me that. Not that my bishop was a God, um, but it was like God was working through him in that moment. I was like, When he said troublemaker, right. did you get what he meant? Because it sounds oh, like yeah. somebody who's going to disrupt or breathe life Very into so. a church that... We've ta- we talked about it after the fact, and he was like, mm. it's that prophetic troublemaker. Mm-hmm. I mean, he did call me menace because my name is Dennis, but <laughs> um, he also always stood behind me um, when I had something to say that was important. Um, and he never told me to, to stop fighting, you know, and I think that was always important. So, um, yeah, it was, it empowered me a lot. Um, and, and I was appreciative of his support in that. Did it feel like when you, you know, it's like the, the take the road less traveled. Sure. Did it feel like you were veering away from a common path that people understood to continuously going against the grain to something it sounds like you were dialed in from the start you know but what did that feel like kind of veering off or did you have people that were just scratching their head going wait dude do you know what this means you know yeah actually I lost a lot of friends along the way um because my life changed my priorities changed Uh, did I change no the the friends that stuck around will will testify Mm -hmm. to that you know they they might have said you got a little weird for a little while um (laughs) but honestly you're going through this this it is true conversion and and I've said this before conversion isn't a singular moment it's not like you become this person instantly um it's a series of moments tied together with grace and so I saw this change and it, it, that continues in this to this day in who I am. I didn't like seminary. Um, I did not like Is that normal to not like seminary? I, I or think did anybody you feel who likes seminary, they're kind of weird. But like, <laughs> no, I think, I, I don't know if anybody struggled with it as much as I did, but I knew 
and, and that's not a fair thing. I mean, I can't say like, oh, I hated seminary worse than anybody did. I think I was more vocal about it with my peers and with my um, with my parents, my dad particularly, because my dad, dad is, is a deacon. Is a deacon, right? right? Yes, he was ordained. Oh, gosh, I, I should know this number better. I could figure it out. At least fifteen years ago, I think. I think it was his fifteenth anniversary recently, um, which is huge. Um, but he knew formation. He's like, I don't. I'm not going to pretend to know what seminary is like. He goes. He said, I know how difficult my formation was. And it was at such a shorter period of time than yours was. And formation is? Formation is going <laughs> off to seminary. And so you you move away because essentially there's no seminaries in Atlanta that are Catholic seminaries. Um, mm-hmm. There are places where Catholics can go and study, but to go to a Catholic, Roman Catholic seminary, um, you, you typically have to leave Georgia. Um, actually, you definitely have to leave Georgia. And so Archbishop Gregory had studied in Chicago, and so he sent me to Chicago. I did my undergraduate at Loyola University Chicago. Even though I had started my time in college at Georgia College in Milledgeville, I did not graduate from there. Um, and that's another story altogether. <laughs> but so I had to go back and get an undergrad, and I did that in the course of three years. And then um, I did my graduate studies at the four year program. And so, but you have to go away. And so I was in Chicago during the school year, which is like the coldest Cold. time of the year yeah. in Chicago. Yeah. And I don't know anybody in Chicago. I mean, it's a great city, but like it was not home. The food was different, the people are different. It's a different place. It was a very awesome Catholic witness for me because of the diversity of the church up there. I'm thankful for that. But it was incredibly uh, disarming in term, or not disarming, but um, it was hard to, to palate being an outsider, being not from there. And I went through the Chicago program the whole time. So I got treated like a Chicagoan, even though I was an outsider. And so it was, it was, it was hard at times for me. Um, and so it was... Um, yeah, so seminary was challenging. Academically, it was incredibly rigorous. You know, the the number of assignments that we have. Um, and I'm, I'm talking at least like, you're looking at 200 pages of reading a week in addition wow. to... Are your, these your, biblical readings? Because that's a not whole just other thing. It's yeah. not just scripture, right? In fact, scripture is probably one of the smaller portions that we study in seminary. Mm-hmm. You get a good a good amount of scripture study. But the, you're talking about church history. There's four pillars. So it's human formation, intellectual formation. Um, there's spiritual formation. And then there's pastoral formation in terms of how do you serve the people that, you know, you're, you're called to. And so you'd have an apostolate, you'd have your, your classes that you're taking, you got mass every day, you know, you're, you're in the chapel praying at seven o'clock in the morning. Um, and then on top of that, I'm incredibly ADD. And so like to sit and learn, to be able to sit and read for those periods of time was really challenging. The academics themselves, that wasn't, that wasn't hard, but just to, to learn, to attain the focus. Um, and so I was really not in my element, you know, I dropped out of college. I, I, I was, I was going to run restaurants, you know, I, and then I got into banking and I didn't need a degree. I, I could do it based on merit. Mm. Um, and so it was just very different for me. And, um, and then I got to the priesthood and it was like, awesome, you know, here I am. Really? So you felt home there? I felt comfortable in the role of priest right from the first. It's wow. like, this is, and this is why I have faith. This is who God made me be. It doesn't mean that I really, I, that I love the climate of the Catholic Church right now. I think that things are incredibly divisive based on the political climate that we're in right now as well. Um, and that makes it very hard because people too tightly align politics with religion and they should be incredibly separate. The reason they need to be separate is that it allows religion to have an influence and to, to weigh in, not on one party, but on either party, mm. to allow us to, to, to be a greater witness ourselves. And so we gave up that freedom, unfortunately. And um, 
and and so we've got some great confusion people don't know what's actually church teaching mm -hmm. and what is um almost uh how do I, I would say tribal um in, in its mentality you know we stick together as, as a team rather than one human family altogether. that's probably a great way to put it and yeah. i'm wondering how with all the controversy that's going on with the catholic church and the catholic faith what is your mission in this time? What is your mission? My my mission is to allow people to understand not only the goodness of God, but like, let's not limit how, how like, let's not put limitations on God. You know, if we're dealing with the divine, we're talking about, it could be many different things. Um, there is a teaching within the church that even states that, that, that Christ opened the gates of heaven for all people, for all humanity, not just for Catholics. So like this elitism that I'm seeing kind of spur up in different communities it's unhealthy and it's actually contrary to the church. The The Christian doesn't know a stranger. We're called to love and, and to be accepting and to be welcoming and to be nurturing. And the, and the hallmark of that is our hospitality, the way that we encounter the stranger, meaning that they are brother or sister or whoever it is, no matter what they believe, no matter who they love, any of those things. Because otherwise you're making this assumption that you're some perfect being, which isn't true. All of us are flawed in our own way. And so my mission is to get people to Jesus and to get out of the way, uh, to allow them to ha realize that there's a community that is loving and accepting. Um, I give retreats all over um, to different groups, but predominantly uh, to married couples that are in the diaconate, which is the, the married clergy within the Roman Catholic Church. Um, they're not priests. They're, they're, um, they're deacons. They can't celebrate mass. They match hatch and dispatch. They do baptisms, weddings and funerals, and they do lots of pastoral work as well. But that's the group that I work on. It's usually for deacons and wives. And, and I try to explain to them that this idea of being closed off is, is not, it's not welcoming. And that I wish that every diocese, meaning, uh, juridical, uh, meaning that there's a territory of the church. So there's two in Atlanta in Georgia, Atlanta and Savannah. But the region that that is that you're serving, that there was a warm welcome, like a soft landing place, mm. not only for for those people who were just looking for church originally, but those who have been wounded by the church by way of abuse, um, by way of bad teaching, um, by way of just closed mindedness, and and to let them know that they are loved and that they're welcome. One of the things that that I noticed about. Um, the Catholic shrine specifically is that um, my husband and I wanted to get married outside mm -hmm. and in the Catholic faith, you cannot do that. My husband right. is Catholic. It was important for his parents for us to marry in the Catholic faith. Sure. And we were happy to do that. And we called around and no church would allow us. And they said, call Catholic shrine. <laughs> and they did. And so we sure. ended up marrying and exchanging our vows in the church mm -hmm. and a deacon came out and married us in front of right. You know, like our, our friends and family outside the next day. Yeah. And I was, it was almost like the portal or the entryway of this makes sense to me. Sure. We became members of the church. And, you know, I, I know you guys have a, a float every year in the Pride Parade, yeah. which I, I could not be more proud of. And the work you do with the homeless, the inclusivity, that you do is um, is really astounding because there are homeless people all around this beautiful, huge church sure. in downtown Atlanta and have soup kitchens for them and, and have done amazing things. And and 
what you said was really around inclusive inclusivity. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things that I wondered, I was I was listening to. Um, I don't know if you've heard this, but it, it's a podcast called Startup, and they had one on church planting. Did you hear it? I have not heard that particular it's episode. So but... good. It's actually a series of episodes. Okay. It was fascinating, and they showed that um, it, they talked about obviously how difficult it is to plant churches. And so many of the churches, while the people that are running it may want to marry gay couples, they cannot because of some of the doctrine or some of the funding or some of the associations. What a sacrament is within the Catholic Church. Yes. Yeah. It, this one wasn't particularly in sure. Catholic, but they said out of all of the churches that a lot of churches are moving, like if you go around Atlanta, you'll see a lot of LGBTQ is yes. welcoming here and a lot of the, the banners, which I love to see. But they said that the only churches that are showing growth are the ones that are extremely conservative and very purist to that. And and it just boggles my mind that it does not seem, it seems more exclusive is growing. And I wondered if, if, if I'm, maybe I'm speaking out of school or what your thoughts are on that. I think it, it depends on region and things like that. Um, you know, it, it's a tricky thing uh, with, with church teaching, you know, as of right now, marriages between a man and a woman, you know, but in terms of also who is welcome to come to mass, anybody's welcome to come to mass. Um, and, and if this is in fact a baptized Catholic individual that they, it's within the heart of the recipient, whether they are to receive the Eucharist and, and be present there. But the thing is that we want them to know that they're welcome to be a part of the community, you know, that, that they have a home in that. Um, I don't know about, other denominations within the the Atlanta downtown area in terms of growth and and things like that. I would say though this it's is nationally right right in churches yeah sure yeah. and well and it's so different it depends on what's going on within each uh, like diocese as far as like growth and things like that. But I would say that the vibrancy of some of these churches um, in terms of like our parish the the welcoming nature it makes the church feel like a welcoming place and and as a parish like we are growing personally. Um, and I think that's a really important thing that that there, that we are representing Christ in that way uh, to allow people to know, come here, be be healed here, realize you have a home here. And it's a very mixed community too. Oh, yeah. and it's, it's very packed. Diverse. It's packed. Yeah, absolutely. The eleven o'clock mass any given Sunday. I, I I'm like, just come to the eleven. If you, if you're if you want to feel fed, come and be a part of that. You know. Um, and, and we brought what 14 people into the church this last Easter, you know, they go through the RCIA program, which is the rite of Christian initiation for adults, meaning they receive the sacraments on the Easter vigil, the, the Saturday night before Easter Sunday. And to see people coming into the church right now, despite the fact that yes. so much has gone on and that. It, it's a hard time to be a Catholic right now. Mm. Um, it's a hard time to be a priest right now, for that matter. You know, um, but... Have you felt that personally? Do oh, people yeah. ask you or people that would have trusted you look at you again and say, I don't know if I feel safe? Uh, yeah, I recognized that when I was in seminary. Anytime I'd go down to the cathedral, you get looks if you're wearing your Roman collar and you're on, uh, you know, on the train. I would I rode the public transit everywhere in Chicago. I didn't have a car up there. Um you get looks. Um, I got spat on at times. And it's like, mm. dude, I wasn't even like alive when some of these things were going on. Um, and, and, and I have to be honest, like the scandal when it broke in 2001, I was I was 21 years old. 
Or which turning scan- 21. Which scandal? The, the initial sex scandal okay. breaking. <laughs> there have been um, a lot. i got to clarify. 1.0, unfortunately. You know, yeah. we've had a second round um, with, with Pennsylvania in the last year. But it's that reality that um, I, I remember at that time thinking, gosh, I mean, they, they're not all bad. Like, every priest isn't mm-hmm. bad. Now, priests are, some priests are weird, you know, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're, they're predatory. There's a profound lack of understanding of, around the psychology of pedophilia um, by all people uh, because psychologically there hasn't been a great understanding of it. This compulsion, this, and, it's, and it's a disgusting compulsion um, because what it makes the person do is something that they don't even really logically they don't want to do but mm-hmm. it's a craving as much as you and i crave breathing mm-hmm. um and so it, it it's that idea of oh we'll just move them out of the parish that doesn't work and that never worked um but they thought it was good they were looking at their brother and thinking oh gosh there's something i have to do to help this guy let me just move him i'm sure there was some malice in, in that as well let's just keep hiding the secret you know that is father bob whatever you know but I hope that wasn't the case in the majority, you know, and, and if that is the case that I hope those, those wounded individuals that have been hurt by the church and by those who are supposed to represent Christ, I, I hope that at some point they come to realize that, 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 that God does love them and that God did not do this to them, um, that, that a monster did this to them. Um, that is hard and, to, and it's, it's hard. hard to, it's hard to fathom. It it's is hard to fathom. It is. So it, that's, a, I mean, that's a tough thing to, to live in that light and to be, looked at in the same way as them um Mm. i think that's probably why i have the longer hair the pierced ears you know like i I do have a a different look but that's also to overcome expectations you know or those preconceived notions that people have so are you young for a a new priest shockingly not um the year that i was ordained so i was ordained in 2013 uh that year the average age of priest was 33 and i was 30 i turned 33 that year wow um the average age of guys getting ordained and so that what that means is six years prior to that, there were a number of men that were, you know, 26, 27 years old that were entering into seminary because it's a minimum of six years. Mm. And so I don't know what it was that was going on then. Um, different men come in for different reasons. Uh, it's always a calling of sense, um, but it's, it's stronger in some guys than it is in others. Um, I, I, I never want to speak for somebody else, yeah. but, you know, I think... You have people that they were profoundly influenced by Gregorian chant and Pope Benedict and all of that. Me, not so much. You know, um, Pope Francis has been the first Pope during my lifetime that I'm like, this guy is awesome. Like, yeah. and it's everything I've ever believed about the gospel. And he's not, he's painting outside the lines, despite what some very conservative bishops say. He is preaching the message of the gospel, and that's incredible. And he's saying, focus on on your environment. If we don't even take care of the place that we live, what kind of Christian are we? Yeah. You know? And, and so to be aware of that, um, starting with literally the foundation that we walk on and trying to reform from there going forward, I think that's admirable. And he calls things out. And he, I, I, I'm appreciative of, of his pontificate would be the word yeah his serving i'm curious to know what it was like the very first time that you did a homily as a priest the very first time i mean you have you know the the elder statesman father henry grotz who has been there forever and is just a pillar of the community and being this young new priest what did it feel like what was it like it's funny okay so in the catholic church you start preaching when you're a deacon which every priest is a deacon first 
Um, and so I started preaching then. Um, my first mass as a priest, I actually had my dad preach it because he's a deacon. And so it was, it's kind of, it was like an honor. But there, there's this, there was this clear line, this, this certain moment, and this was when I was in seminary. It was a, it was a day that all of us were getting together. It was a Saturday. There were like, there were seven, six of us in my class at the time. And, um, and so over the course of the summer, while we were all home from seminary, we would gather once a week and we'd, we'd have mass and one of the deacons would preach it. Right. And so it's like, you're getting preaching in front of all of your peers and that's a little daunting. Um, and I had been that afternoon, I had sat there with this older lady in the hospital all afternoon because I was doing my CP. No, it wasn't CP. It was right after that, but I was sitting in the hospital with her for some reason that afternoon. And, um, and so, but I was working on my homily and I wrote this big, long homily out and it had, it was crazy because I got up there, I put my iPad out, I go to read it and I'm like, my heart is not where that is anymore. It's in what was just happening with this old lady that I was sitting with. And all of a sudden I just let myself preach from, from my heart. And it was energized in a way that none of my preaching ever had been before. Hmm. And it was, I, I connected, like I saw these guys who really didn't like listening to me most of the time, <laughs> um, but the, like their heads are going, yeah, okay. Like, and, and you see that resonating. It, it's the same thing when I used to give a sales presentation, when you're making the connections, you can tell it in the body language. Mm. And so it was really cool. It, in that moment, I was like, all right. And, and I realized I'm never going to read a homily again. Like, I, I don't want to, I have had exceptions. So like when the scandal broke this time in a couple, a number of months ago in Pennsylvania, um, I had to write out a statement because honestly I was too pissed to trust myself to preach from my heart. Is that the one that was on your podcast? It is. Yeah. yeah. That was really impassioned. Thank you. you. Know? And I've felt, I've, I actually sent it to my friends and I was like, you've got to hear this. You've got to hear this. Cause it, it was meaningful. It yeah. was meaningful. I mean, I, I still spoke from my heart. But I very much gave myself bumpers, you know, so that I didn't, I didn't say something that could be dismissed, so that I didn't say something that could potentially be perceived as me lessening what tragedy was taking place, but also to make sure that, that I was being heard, um, that this is not okay. And actually it was my, my pastor had just gone, gotten knee surgery. And so like, I wasn't going to be preaching that weekend and suddenly I was preaching that weekend and so it was it was a lot there was a lot riding on that we have a lot of very wounded people at the shrine who have experienced abuse in the church itself um not obviously from us there they've come back to be healed but some atrocities took place mm -hmm. other places and they, they found their home in atlanta and they, they they found the shrine to be their real home and so I had to be very careful uh, that I could minister and, and, and love these people and heal these people in a way that they knew that this did matter to me. Um, and so, yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. It was, I, I think it's always important to be authentic. It was one of the lines that I would hear from various professors throughout the time I was in seminary. What are we looking for? Not just witnesses of the gospel, authentic witnesses mm -hmm. of the gospel. Well, I wonder what it's been like you coming into the parish and it, do you not prepare the homily oh, or, no. or I'm not, no, I don't mean, do you not prepare, but do you, I never write it out. I'm, I'm, you don't use notes No, and you just speak from the heart. Yeah. I, so going in, I take, how do you prepare? Like, what do you, is it just what comes through you? Do you channel, you know, God through, how does it work? No, I mean, 
I, I mean, obviously, anytime you're you're using a gift that it's God working through you, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that that's a gift of orders as far as I'm concerned because I didn't do this beforehand. Um, but I'll take, I'll say, we know what the gospel is going to be. We know what the readings are. I mean, the lectionary is set and, until the second coming of Christ. It's on a rotation of three years. <laughs> um, and so I know what the gospel is going to be about. And so I, I start reading that on Monday morning. Um, and I... I, I read that at least once a day, every day over the course of the week. And then I take every person that I'm, I'm meeting for spiritual direction, because people come to me for spiritual direction, um, any of the pastoral appointments, uh, what people are struggling with, because what's going on in the world around us, it affects everybody differently, but similarly um, in terms of heightened struggle. And, you know, it's always the on top of that, there's this, you know, we've always got our family issues, but then like this is going on and this is affecting me. Mm. And so... I'll take all of those things and, and I take all that stuff to prayer and I take that stuff to meditation and I take that stuff. Well, I don't really take it to meditation. I'm trying to clear my head what out. What's the difference meditation. between prayer and meditation? So me. meditation is, is a, is a scanning of self essentially and learning to be able to take whatever intrusions of thought come in and to just acknowledge and pet push them away. And that takes practice, especially for an ADD person. Like it takes, it, it's been crucial. And so, uh, uh, meditation is almost an emptying and, and I always do meditation before I go into prayer so that I'm not distracted during my prayer so that I have a better focus in my prayer. Prayer, it's a conversation with God. You know, it's not so much talking as it is listening. Um, God knows what's in my heart. And so I take all that that is in my heart, but that's um, more organized. It's the folded laundry rather than the, the hamper filled with, with uh, everything strewn. Great analogy. Um, and so I can take that in and, and, and present that and and then I can work with that and I can think about well what does this relate to in scripture what does this relate to in my own life what does this relate to have I do I have a good story and if I don't have a story like how can I craft a story that will make sense and so I could say there's this guy you know and I can share that with them the parable is an effective tool you know I'm not lying to anybody I'm sure this guy does exist someplace this scenario probably happened at some point um and so, but you, you share that and it, and it conveys an idea. It's a, it's a storytelling, but with, with a greater sense of relationship. And that's what I'm trying to bestow upon the people when I'm preaching, you know, and honestly, the bigger the crowd, the better I do. And, and that's not because, that's not fair. The more responsive a crowd, the better I do. And so like, you can tell when you're dialed in. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. The, the place starts, it becomes electric. You start mm-hmm. hearing the amens go off and, and it's not like in a traditional, like Southern Baptist black church kind of a thing. <laughs> Although we get some of that I too. And that. I'm like, that's I love so that. awesome. <laughs> there was like, there was an old dude that used to sit in the front row every week and be like, hallelujah. You know, and I'm like, all right, that's cool. He'd say it at random times. So I'm like, all right, he's right in the spirit. But, um, but no, I, I love that that response that, that if you're saying something that is visceral to someone and it, it invokes something within them, like you're doing it right. Like that's a good thing. God is with us both in that moment. Like that's a, that's a great thing. Um, we are engaged. We are united. That's what prayer is supposed to be. It's about changing your own heart, not changing the hearts of others. That's the great misconception of prayer. Say that again. Say that again, because that's really powerful. Prayer is about changing your own heart. It's about uniting yourself with others. It's not about changing how others think or act or anything else. If you struggle with how someone else acts, 
you you need to pray for the peace to be able to accept that that's how that person is how do you do that how do you find that peace that's really 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 big because it's huge i'm thinking you know like your job is to move a community yeah. your job is to move the congregation to do something well but i'm moving them to christ and so it's not mm. like it's it's too hard i'm just you meet people where they are you listen to what they're saying um people express themselves in in very uh what's the word i'm looking for nuanced ways mm. they if someone is struggling with grief they're going to use a lot of grief language they don't realize it but everything that they talk about is going to be about the absence or the omission or something that's lacking and you hear that in them they're not actually talking about what's missing but you hear them carving out that almost like scraping away from the rock and, and giving you the statue in the end you just have to listen to what they're saying and so for for most people what i'm trying to do is to listen and give them something that's going to fill that something that's going to help them to love more meaning accept them where they are realize that everybody's coming from a different place but everybody's also carrying their own wounds if somebody is acting out in a particular way it means that they are trying to fill something that's not there or something that hurt them at some point in time a lot of what i do is psychology i was just about to say because you seem very evolved you know <laughs> even as a, um, a male you know like as males are socialized to be a certain way you know oh, yeah absolutely and uh, we can talk all day long about toxic masculinity and right, some of no, the but it's it's legit you know, and it's some of there. the things yeah. but it seems like you're almost like a comedian where your job is to notice things <laughs> and that kind of let that ruminate yeah, Every absolutely. It, yeah. It, it's funny. I pull back on like improv, you know, it, it's yes. And, um, mm -hmm. and so you're, you're looking for what people are, are doing. It's funny. You're the, the fifth person that said that it's like your craft is like comedy and it, and it is. <laughs> and, and sometimes I can be really funny with that too, you know, because you, you're, you're grasping what people are yearning for next, you know, and you're anticipating what it is that they need next. Um, and, and so you're building an idea or an argument technically in logic and philosophy it's called a syllogism it's an argument that that's made i'm gonna have to look up all of these words and put them in the show notes <laughs> no you're good yeah um essentially i'm defining it it's uh, it's creating a logical argument if a then b if b then c therefore a equals c you know um or a then c and so it's 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 being able to follow that train of thought and so what i'm doing is building a train of thought i'm, I'm bridging the relationship i'm allowing people to you know, if someone is vile in terms of their politics, like it means that they got hurt in some way or their self-preservation is huge. People will act nasty based out of fear or protection, fight or flight, um, you know? And so what I'm trying to do is get people to a place where they don't need to feel that they need to fight or run, mm. that they can encounter and that they don't have to fight with their brothers and sisters. They don't have to fight with their neighbors. They don't have to and that's hard. You watch the news for five minutes, you develop a mild case of Tourette's, right? Yeah, like yeah, you start yeah. twitching and saying four letter words. All um, every morning it happens and, and in it's my hard, house. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I almost need to, and, and I've actually adopted this practice in the last four months. I do not check any digital anything. I don't watch the news or listen to the radio or anything until I've done my meditation and prayer first. Mm. It's almost like your own protection or shield. You know what? Let's give God what's best before I get polluted by the rest of the world. You know what I mean? Like that's where oh, I'm precious. That's, that's such where I'm a great. Good. You know, <laughs> that's such a great thing. Like brew some coffee, sit with God, light a candle, it, it, and then you know what? It's okay if the day goes downhill from there because I started at the top of the mountain. And one of the things I noticed too is that in a lot of your homilies, you're very quick to 
call out hypocrisy in yeah. Christianity and Catholicism. I appreciate that. I relate to that because I'm like, I really am trying to st struggle and figure out what God means to me, what religion sure. is. And I've, I've largely pushed it away. Um, like, and, and I'm like a cafeteria Christian where I'm like, I believe in God. I don't know anything else about the rest. I believe right. in Jesus. I, I don't know anything else. And you know, like, so, so I relate or I kind of really dial into that, but I wonder if you get pushback from your congregation when you do that or people challenging you. Not for my congregation. Um, typically it's people who intellectualize God into a corner. Um, and so, you know, I, I'll engage in the, the jovial, you know, banter back and forth. And then they start telling me that, you know, I'm a heretic and I'm like, actually, no, you are. And, and what you're professing is, is a heresy called Feneism. You know, like if you want to one up me intellectually, let me just share this with you first. Um, you know, you're not working within the grounds of the teachings of the church. When you start judging other Christians and that you haven't embraced them as brother or sister first to begin with, and fraternal correction goes out the door. And, and so the reality is I'm having to teach an entire multiple generations what the faith actually is for the first time. Mm. In fact, that's most of what I do as a priest. It's, it's reteaching people um, what the actual teaching of the church is because people are so quick to judge that people are so quick to uh, round the, they're just, they're just nasty to each other. I mean, I don't have a better way of putting it. They're just unkind and, and lacking all the hallmarks of Christianity at that point. And I, you know, I understand your, your position is probably to love them and to forgive them and to pray for them, yeah. but it's hard, you know, oh, yeah. when you have the reality of people that are pushing back. And I know that, that your church, because it is so inclusive, that you do get, you know, pushback sure. on that, or you get criticized, not you, but the church gets criticized for not being as, as I don't know, purist? Uh, no. The word that gets used is orthodox. Yeah. Um, the, the reality is that orthodoxy is the straight teaching of, of the church. Um, orthodonty, orthodontist, straight teeth. Um, it's that straight <laughs> teaching of the church. Um, orthopraxy is the, the proper practice of, of church. But the thing is this, there's nothing that we are doing that's out of line. Mm -hmm. um, we, we do everything by the book, uh, you know, the, and that's, the only way that we can operate as a Catholic church is if we do that. The only difference is that we're not telling people you can't be there. The only difference is that we are not excluding people from the Eucharist itself. Um, you know, because someone lives a lifestyle um, that doesn't work for somebody else doesn't necessarily mean that this person is either A, living a life of sin, or B, that I need to judge how they live their life. Um, because this is an individual it's a child of God whom God made in his image and that this is the person who is loved and accepted and welcome and they need to know that that's still true within the Catholic Church um, it's funny there are some who say that we are still in the early stages of Christianity I think that when we look at the, the, the Christianity what it was intended to be I think we have almost looked as if it's this small thing that doesn't have limits if it was instituted by God, if it was a creation of God, then that means like all other things that are of the divine, it's going to flourish. It's going to grow. It's going to become bigger. It's going to be better. And that doesn't mean based on numbers. It means based on love. 
and how we are able to truly learn to accept the differences that exist within each other. And so I, I know I, I kind of come across like hippie Jesus, but like the, the truth of it <laughs> is like to love your neighbor, to welcome the stranger. This is all scriptural. Um, yeah, there are traditions in the church, but there's also lots of things that the church has done that are not good. Um, you know, not perfect. We have, it's, it's run by humans. It's going to be fallible in and of itself. Um, there are times we, where we have been too quick to respond. There are times where we have not responded quickly enough. Um, there are times where control has been overly implemented. Um, historically, that's a very true thing. And anytime you're implying control, it's in direct opposition to faith. Mm. And so like you weren't on the right side with that one. You know, and so, yeah, I'm going to call out hypocrisy and so did Christ, you know, and, and I never claim to be perfect when I'm doing that. Mm -hmm. I usually will admit, you know, some personal failure, you know, like I am not perfect about this, but this isn't even near where we're called to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's kind of how that comes about. And I'm wondering about, um, you have a very unique position to be in a, a role of a clergyman. Is that the right term? A priest? A priest. Um, clergy is different, isn't it? Well, clergy is the priests <laughs> and the deacons and the bishops. So okay. pre- clergy is an umbrella. I could not. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's I so need, complicated. I should There's really so do much some studying. Yeah, no, you're good. You're um, good. On, on at least what, what all of it means. But as, as your role as a priest, as somebody who is face to face with people who are sharing their deepest, darkest. Yeah. You know, you're probably very dialed in to we as people on what we need. What are you what are you seeing? What is the sentiment? What do people need? What do you know that you wish we could all know? Okay, so any actually, you know, it's if you watch the Mr. Rogers documentary, it's amazing, it's isn't incredible. it? Oh. Well, and there's that one line that that every good and every every person we I'm so botching it. I wish I had the quote in front of me, but it's that idea that we act the way that we do based on the presence or the absence of love. Um, the absence of love being the sin that goes into the world, essentially, and that we're born into this world of where love is lacking in certain places that people are responding. I mean, essentially, sin is a disease. You know, um, if I, if someone was unkind to me or sinful to me, and that makes me upset, and then I take it out on you, you see this with siblings all the time. Um, like then, then sin is contagious. That's a very bad thing. But love is so much stronger than that. Love heals that. Love allows it to stop. So that like, if I really love my sister and I saw my mom get yelled at and she, you know, comes and she smacks me, like, I'm not going to hate my sister because she did that. I just know that my, A, my sister's volatile um, and B, she just got in trouble. And so that's how it is. If I seek an understanding I, I can love more. It seems like context and perspective makes all the it's difference everything. for compassion yeah, and for, for love. We can't be so reactive to the world around us. I mean, that's the danger of all of it. You see this in, in just in traffic, you know, like just the way that people act with each other, this idea of road rage, like that shouldn't exist. Like with the way people act when you honk a horn, even if it's just to let somebody know that the light has turned green, you know, you beep beep, like they get angry I didn't tell you you did anything wrong. I'm trying to tell you the right way to go. Like my husband gets angry at a horn. I'm from New Jersey. I use it liberally. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I lived in Chicago long enough that like yeah. I have no problem using a horn. Um, <laughs> but it's that that reality that yeah, we're not judging each other. And you know what? I think the world is so wounded right now. Um, and I think unfortunately there have been people that have preyed upon the fears 
that people have. And that's why politics has gotten as crazy as they have at this point. Is there a way to correction? Yeah, we, we have to have a greater love. We have to learn to reach across aisles. We need to learn to... It, here's the thing, though. Right now, it, it's really hard. Some of the things that are being carried out are are really literally their crimes against humanity. These are um, a total disregard for human rights. Um, this is a, a human dignity issue, not a political issue. But because it has become aligned with politics, it's like, wow. Um, that all being said... It means that I need to just continue that anger that I would want to direct towards another person. I need to redirect that into putting more good into the world. So it's more of like a personal agency more than anything. Yeah, basically. Yeah. I mean, if you see an injustice, do something more just. Mm. If you see something that's hateful, put out something that's more loving. You know, because there are those times where you just can't counteract and you can't convince somebody in their terminal righteousness right you know they they're they just they know they're right about this okay well they're stuck you're not if you truly are sit you know lit on fire by the love of god if you truly even if it's not a god thing if you just love humanity i mean that that source of love is god so like i see a no-brainer in that one but like some people have a hard time with god okay fine do you believe in in love I think most people do believe in love, Mm. you know, unless you've reduced it to be this like series of chemical, whatever that takes (laughs) place. But like that fades. The love of God does not, you know, every time I'm struggling in my ministry, I go do more service and it re-energizes me. How do you know that for sure? Um, Because I almost dropped out of seminary. That's first summer that I was there. I did summer school trying to get college seminary done as quick as possible. And I was living in this rectory by myself and there was nothing. And like, and I was just like, I was just going through like paperbacks, like nonstop. I was binging Netflix. I don't even know if Netflix was out at the time. I think I was actually, it was West Wing. A buddy of mine had given me his, uh, his DVDs and like I, I binged through every season of it. Um, and, and like, and I was still doing all of my assignments for school and everything else. And I was just like, I'm withering on the vine. Like, why am I doing this? I had a great job. Like I had good money. I had, and then. I don't know. I woke up one morning. Actually, I probably didn't go to bed one night and I, I saw the sunrise and I was like, I've got to do something different. And so I went and I called my, my vocations director. And I said, I need some money. I want to do this project. And he goes, yeah, sure. What do you need? And I said, he was great. Anytime I asked for money, he gave it to me. And, um, I went and bought a huge camping backpack that was like, I want to say it was like a 75 liter huge. And I got a huge carafe for coffee and a big tin of rolling tobacco and a bunch of rolling papers. And I started going to the bakery. Oh, this sounds getting, like hippie Jesus. <laughs> yeah, this is totally hippie Jesus. And I would go and get old Dale bagels and like stuff like that from different bakeries. I just talked to them in the area and I get big plastic trash bags full of like old stale bagels. Um, but honestly, like it was great. I, and I started going to different people in Daly Plaza and I'd give them a bagel and some hot coffee and I'd roll a cigarette with them and I just treat them like people. And there's a big community because the church that I would go to during the summer was, um, it, it's the one down in, um, in the loop, St. Peter in the loop. I don't know why I couldn't remember the parish name, beautiful Georgian marble, incredible church. There's confessionals all down the walls. And I was able to go to confession on Saturday morning and then I could go and serve the homeless and like, it was good. And that's what turned me back. It like, and that's what made me alive again. And I was like, all right, this is what I got to do. 
um, that's so profound too. It sounds like you clearly have a heart for service. I bet your yeah. dad is like so proud. Yeah, I think <laughs> so. I mean, it's it's funny. He didn't go into the diaca until I was out of the house. I was gone, and so like it's not like we were all like, yeah, I'm going to be a deacon one day. Oh, I'm going to be a priest one day. Like, I think everybody thought my brother was going to be the priest. He's the one who's the ER doctor up in Boston now. Um, but like he was the one who liked church. He's the one who was the altar server. I didn't serve a mass until I was in seminary for the mm, first time. Wow. With one exception of my, my cousin sweating where there was a horrible candle fiasco. I could, I didn't know how to light a candle or light a match. It was really, there were like cardboard matches. I couldn't figure it out. <laughs> and so some lady who smoked, who was in the front row, she like came out with her lighter and like lit it. And it was kind of embarrassing, but whatever. But yeah, I didn't know how to serve the mass. I didn't know much about that. I, I just knew... The presence of God was a, an important, good thing. The the saint that I identify with for anybody who's Catholic that, that listens, St. John the Baptist. Like, this guy who was off doing his own thing. He's he's Jesus' cousin. He's six months older than him. But it's this idea that he was the one who brought people to Christ initially. He had his own um, disciples, his own students. Discapuli is the word. It means student in Latin, and that's where the word disciple comes from. Um, and so he had this his own following. And then he recognized that he needed to go away so that Christ could begin his. So the most of, of John's disciples went to Christ. He was people who got people to Jesus and literally got out of the way. And so like John the Baptist is like, I don't know, I've got like a man crush on like his, his, <laughs> I, I, I dig everything that he did. Everything about him is intriguing. Um, he just, he second chair, but like, that's good. That's not a bad thing. It's not about me. It's about what, what can we do, you know? And so I, I, I really like everything about him. I don't know if you'd agree with me on this, but I feel like there's been more of a spiritual awakening that's happening now where people are realizing that serving others is yeah. really the key to joy, to happiness, to everything. It's not money. It's not status. It's not any of those things. It's just, how can I serve? At least maybe this is just what I fill my head with all day long <laughs> is people like Seth Godin and, sure. you know, people who, um, who live and preach that of, of how can I serve? And I wonder if you feel that that's true. I think it's a true statement. I think that people, once they, they come to service, that they realize that. But, you know, how many people are listening to, you know, there are people that are committed to self-improvement and then there are people that aren't. Um, if you are committed to self-improvement, you're going to, you know, come in and encounter Seth Godin and people like that and, and read his books and listen to the podcasts and do all those things. And then they will come to that understanding because they were seeking growth. The, the problem is so many people are completely complacent um, and familiarity breeds contempt. And so that's where you get that, that sour Christianity. You know, I always say I struggle with cranky priests. Like, there's no reason for you to be cranky. You have more encounters with God than anybody else. Like, <laughs> seriously, what's wrong with you? Um, but like that crankiness, like it's it shouldn't be embodied in the authentic Christian. What does it feel like when God is talking through you? Is it a feeling or is it just the idea just comes? In terms of like preaching? Anything. Um, I mean, anything. there are times like, like when okay, you so ask God, when you ask God a question, when you're praying for something, what does it feel like? Okay, so it's... Honestly, it's it's just it's it's seeking a clarity in something more than anything else. It's not like God is you know saying, "Well, choose the door on the left." You know, it doesn't it doesn't work like that. Free will is such an integral piece. Like there isn't that's that's why I kind of like fortune tellers and all of those things. Like I don't put stock in it because it inhibits free will or it influences free will, which is not good either. 
um, to be able to act with your heart, to be able to act based on, on prayer and discernment is what's so significant. And so when I, I think it's, there's just this energy that takes place when you're preaching and you know, the people are connecting with you. Um, sometimes I'm so in the moment, like, I don't know what I just preached about. I knew what I was going to preach about. I think I hit all the points that I was trying to, but some of those connection points, like I'm, I'm not as aware of them as I'd like to be. It's not autopilot at all. It's supercharged, but it's in that moment where it's, it, there's a lot of adrenaline. Um, like it was two weeks ago, I think I was at the Eucharistic Congress. This is a giant Catholic gathering, 30,000 Catholics ish, um, at the GICC down by the airport. And I preached the opening mass that night and I got out there and I preached and like, it was funny. One of the other priests, he came up, came up to me and he goes, so you just like got all like, cool. You just like stand up and you just start talking. And I'm like, is that how it went? I don't know. Like I Were couldn't you always see myself. That way? Were you always just talking? See, the thing is I'm super nervous. You know, like I'm always nervous before mass. I, it's funny. I am a, a huge extrovert, but I, I'm more of like an ambivert. I'm, I'm both. Yeah. Um, and because that that personal time, that prayer time has become crucial to me. That interior life is important. Um, yeah, I, I, I think I've become a better preacher the longer I've been doing it. I, you know, you preach a certain number of times. It's it's like anything, 10,000 hours, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I preach Mass every day for the most part. Well, Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, Sundays. You really? Yeah. Most, oh, wow. Yeah. There's daily mass every day. Mm-hmm. And we, so it's at 1210. Look at that. <laughs> yeah. 1210 at the shrine. Um, if you're on jury duty for Fulton County, just come across the street. Right. Um, but that's actually, the, that's the intention of it. If you're, if you have to serve jury duty, that the doors are open. Is that right? Um, yeah. You, I've usually got like three or four lawyers most days um, or people that are working. Folks from CDC, we've got a decent number of, of our guests, the homeless population that'll come in either to, to pray or to um, just get a relief from the heat. And I don't blame them, you know, and so I'm glad they're there. Uh, I know most of them that come in either by face or by name. Um, but it's it's an interesting mix. And so it's at 1210. I, I it's there's no music during the mass. And so like I, I that plane has landed by 1232, like every single time, like I started 1210. It's a 22 minute mass. And that's good. And so people can come in, get Jesus. They can stay as long as they want to. But then, you know, once everybody leaves, we lock the doors and, and that's that. Got Jesus. Got Jesus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so some Jesus. I'm, I'm curious to see with all this stuff that's going on, how, you know, I'm sure a lot of people feel like they might have been burned from the church, from, from what they hear, whatever it is. How do we trust the people that are leading religious you know I was talking to my mother I was telling her that I was going to interview you you know she's like I remember church for me was the safest place you can go right and now you don't know right it might not be you know definitely and nothing is absolute I mean the reality of the situation is I don't blame anybody who doesn't want to be Catholic um at the same time you don't go to church to worship the priest you know, I don't worship the institution itself. Now, granted, I'm, I'm, I didn't take vows. I do promises because I'm a diocesan priest. It's original recipe, uh, priesthood. Um, and, and so, uh, the reality is like, I have promises that I've made. I've, I've taken an oath of, of obedience and, um, and, and done the profession of faith. And so like, I have to teach what it is that the church teaches. Mm. And I think that's an important thing. It's not a bad thing at all. But at the same time, long gone are the days the father holds up the host, the, the piece of bread, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God, and like people are buying it. 
um, just because father said it. There are people that believe it. I, you know, I, I hope there are many people that believe it, but at the same time, like, why would I believe that? You know, the priest that told me that was abusive or the priest that told me that was this or that. We don't put our faith in, in people as much as we do the, the family that, that I think that, that it can potentially create. But the reality is we go to worship God. We come to, to encounter God. We come to be changed personally. Keep in mind, prayer is not about, it's about changing yourself. Prayer is about personal conversion. And so why do I go to church? Because I want to encounter God. And if you believe that, that's where you go and you get it. And if the reality is like you may encounter a church that it's not a great place, um, that it doesn't feel welcoming. That's a scriptural thing. It comes from Luke. It comes from Matthew. If you're not welcome in that town, shake the dust from your sandals and and let your peace be received somewhere else. Mm. I hope that you find a church home that you receive that peace and that they receive yours. That's why the shrine, I think, is a great place. Um but I hope that they have that encounter anywhere. I, I hope that they find that because faith for me is it's, it's, it's the operating system by which I, I make my decisions. I, I, I don't go to look to the catechism and go, what does the church teach? I know what the church teaches on that, but I don't make that decision based on that. It comes from a place of love. It should come from a place of love. Mm. And how do we encounter people? How do we do this or do that? And so I think that's the important thing that, that we do this to, to be receptive to the love of God. I think that's the main reason we go to church. It's to open my heart. It's to allow myself to do that. Uh, faith isn't a series of if then statements. Um, faith is about an authentic relationship with your maker. And so, yeah, I, I struggle with priests too. You know, I struggle with bad attitudes. I struggle with, with the crankiness and the bureaucracy and it, yeah, it's a struggle but who am I at church for? And it's for God. How do you protect yourself from that too? You, from uh, you becoming that way, you know? Oh yeah, no, it's or easy. Just to, having it could, you have it could happen. access to everything, you know. Sure. Exposed to <laughs> yeah, a no. lot. Oh, you know, yeah, you're exposed absolutely. to a lot of beautiful love, and you're exposed to probably the ugliest parts of people too. Yeah. No. Yeah. Definitely. You know, I think managing expectations is the, the greatest thing. You have to have no pride yourself. I mean, like pride is a, is a just debilitating thing to have in self. It fuels narcissism. It, it can be a great challenge, but also pride comes out of a wounded place. And so for me, I just have to accept that everyone's got their own struggle. And I don't mean that any cliche, you know, everyone's carrying their own burden, but it is a true thing. I mean, yeah. it's a reality that like, Everyone's family of origin is complicated. Um, far fewer are the families with the, the, the perfect childhood upbringing um, and with the proper amount of, of time, attentiveness, and listening that the, that the children deserve to, to grow up and truly be what they're called to be. Um, you know, um, it's funny. People will often say, you know, oh, your dad's a deacon. That must be why you're a priest. Actually, my dad was on the road like 80% of the time growing up. We didn't get to know each other until we were adults, really. I mean, I knew who my dad was, but I didn't really know my dad. Um, we worked kind of as, as prayer partners. Like I would read something. I'd be like, this is interesting. And he'd send it to, you know, and I'd send it to him and he'd do the same thing for me. And so we had a shared library in that regard. But like, I think what's really important is to to kind of be growing in a way that we are to what other people, what we needed most that we provide for other people, what we identify that they need most. And mm -hmm. and I don't mean that in a, 
um, codependent kind of a way. I mean that in a like nurturing, loving, providing way. And it doesn't mean that you need to be their primary caretaker and initiate that love with other people, allow other people to look out for other people. Um, when people are so like self-interested, it's all self-preservation. You know, it means that something's, they're scared of something mm. that they're looking for something that was either not provided in the first place or they got taken away from them in some way. And so our job is to, to heal that by providing that and, and letting them know that you are safe, you know, that, that I, I hope for you, nothing but goodness, you know? Um, and I also know like, you've got to fix you. I can't fix you. I can, I can give you the roadmap. I can, I can walk you through it. I can even listen and, and continue to help you. The only one who can help you is you, you know, and that's a really important thing. Like I can't have a Messiah complex cause honestly, like I can't do anything without you. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, <clears throat> letting people know that like you're stronger than you think you are, you, you can do more than you ever thought possible. Um, but we got to heal you first. You know, you break your leg, you need a crutch, you need a cast, you need time. It's so true. Um, I think that wounded, right there, that right there, the time yeah. is where we fall because oh, yeah. we want, we don't want to be hurt. We want to fix it. And we it. want it instant. Instant. Yeah. yeah. Because we live in a world of instant gratification. Yes. We have Amazon. Yes. yes. Right? Yes. Like, <laughs> yes, I God could go to Amazon. the store right now. Like I could, but. Why would I do that? <laughs> why? I mean, I get free shipping. Like, right. come on. And, and that's unfortunately like, that is the modernity as good as it is and as helpful mm-hmm. as it is it also it malforms us in a particular way i've got a burning question for you <laughs> um where do priests live i mean do they sleep in the altar is there a father no. frat house i mean what is life outside, <laughs> outside okay, the so church every parish typically every every yeah, parish is the word i'm going to use um, every church it has what would be called a rectory and that's the catholic language for it it means priest house at the shrine, um, our priest house is our, um, it, it's our offices, it's our classrooms, it's everything else. And so Henry and I don't live there. And so um, the rectory is off campus. Um, and so it's a house. Um, it's divided into two separate apartments. I've got the apartment upstairs. Henry's got the apartment downstairs. Um, do you guys like hang out and watch The Bachelor or anything? Or? No, no. <laughs> um, I mean, we do hang out. We have meals together and things like that. Um I mean, we'll sit and talk and and have conversations, but we don't, we don't hang and watch TV together. Although, you know, there's rectories that I've lived at, um, where like I would sit and watch, you know, Jeopardy with the pastor every night. Um, like that was just what we did a couple times a week. I'd go and watch the Jeopardy, watch Jeopardy with him. And that was fun. Um, my first pastor loved watching tennis. I didn't really like watching tennis, but I would do that just because like I I try to do something with him. Um, and so that was my contribution, I guess I, I wanted to. Um, it's interesting priests, there's this assumption that we're all the same, like we're as diverse as any other social group. That's what I'm saying. Like living under the same roof with and a guy who's nothing like you. Right. Other than the priest part. How do you, I don't know. And there's 40 years between my boss and I, right? I mean, and the reality is like this guy was a priest before the second Vatican council. His first mass was in Latin. Um, you know, and so he's watched the church just change so much. He's kind of Dumbledore, you know, in the Harry Potter <laughs> series. Um, like he's wise and he's experienced and he's been around and, and, and I, I look to him for that wisdom. Um, he has been such an amazing pastor for me. And so like, I just kind of watch Henry more than anything else. Like he's, you know, as my boss, he's, 
he's a Monsignor. So he's, you know, it's a fancy title. Um, but he is, he's just this very wise man. And so I learned from him to learn to watch because I am a very, I'm young and impatient is the way that I, I, I would word it best. I want to make things change. I want to make things better. I want to make things more welcoming. The reality is you can't do that with Catholics because there'd be like ecclesial whiplash. Um, at the same time, like we could move at a speed faster than glacial. Um, and so it's, it's a tricky thing. Can um, you be part of that change? Well, it's a hierarchical church. Do you have authority to... I don't have any authority over anything. I mean, I, honestly, like I'm the lowest position on the totem pole in terms of like... Wow. Because I'm, I'm, a, I'm what the church would call a parochial vicar. I mean, when I, when I speak, I am not speaking on behalf of the shrine. Um, I am not speaking on behalf of the diocese. Like I do not hold the same views necessarily as them. I, I, I'm pretty sure I've stuck to church teaching completely on this one, but... Um, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty low on the totem pole. Canon law does not protect me in any way. That's why I've had as many assignments as I have, because I haven't been a pastor yet. And so that's why I kind of moved here and there, different assignments, different, different when communities. When you say assignments, what does that mean? Like different churches? Uh, different churches or, or schools. So like I, I did one parish in Decatur. That was my first year. And then I got moved to another parish and I was there for two years. And then I moved to the school for one year and I was like, high school chaplaincy is not a job for me. Um... And then I came to the shrine. Are you going to stay at the shrine? I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. I don't have any say over that, though. I mean, I'm obedient to a bishop. (laughs) Right. And so the bishop says, hey, I need you here. And I've been obedient for all of these moves so far. And so... Do you have to guest appear? Because I understand at Catholic churches, there is a shortage of priests. So... Fortunately, we don't really have that shortage of a priesthood Mm -hmm. um, in, in the Archdiocese of Atlanta. And so there will be a time, I mean... The numbers are not sustaining based on like retirement ages and things like that. In time, if we keep the same number of parishes that we have right now, yeah, I'll be covering multiple parishes. Or Is we'll have to get religious orders if you're to come in. Part of somebody who wants to become a priest and kind of can help usher them through. <laughs> you know, Does I, that happen? I, well, it has happened. I mean, in your church, there's a couple not at, at the shrine itself, but like there are guys who are in seminary now who I was their youth minister mm. um, beforehand. Was I a direct influence on them? I don't think so. But I, I do know, like, with at least one of the guys, he was at my Mass of Thanksgiving, that first Mass that I got to um, do on my own, you know? And so he, he that made him that made him really think. He was like, oh, wow. He actually stuck with it. Like, he could do this. And he's only a couple years away from ordination himself now. So I, I think you're always a witness. I think you're always a, an influence. I think it's a hard thing. To, it's a hard sell right now. I got to be honest with you. Yeah. I mean, like, it's, um, I've, I've been a priest for six years. There's never been a time where the priesthood was, like, revered. You know, like, when Henry was a young priest, like, the priest was a celebrity. Like, father could do no wrong. That also got us into great trouble, right? Um, but, like, mm. it, the priests were exalted and, and treated like royalty in some ways. That's not necessarily a good thing either. Um, but this pendulum is on the far other side now. And so, like, automatically, like, we get stairs you know eyes cut mm-hmm. sometimes and i'm not playing a victim I, I think it's horrible that that anyone should have to look like that you know like anything that i'm it's a tragedy that anything bad happened that would influence society in that way mm-hmm. that people would feel like they need to step in front of them or get between me and their child um you know that's it's heartbreaking um and it, it's an atrocity but i love that you're so strong and resolute in your own place 
Thank you. Yeah. You, I, you do have a position of leadership when people are hurting, when people are broken, when people are confused. You get to stand in front of them and preach what's important to you. And, and I'm sure yeah. somewhere that's probably very gratifying too. Absolutely. I think I ruffled feathers at other parishes that I were at was at before. Um, I don't mind ruffling feathers. The gospel should stir you up. If it doesn't, there's a problem. <laughs> um, but I think it, it was interesting when I got to the shrine, it was an instant fit. Um, it was just, it worked. And so, yeah, there is, it's consoling to be welcomed by a community. And that's exactly what I try to reciprocate to the community that I serve. Yeah. So how can people get in touch with you? They should come visit us at the shrine. Um, we're downtown and um, 58 MLK parking. Uh, you'd park it at underground and um, and get your ticket stamped at the outside of the church before you head back and try to pay for it. And we, we cover your parking. But I mean, if you if you're Catholic and or even if you're not, if you're just looking for God, you know, come and come and check us out. Um, I think that's the important thing, just to realize that that there is a church with open doors that that truly welcomes and advocates for and, and serves. I think I, I believe that we're, we're doing our best to walk the walk, mm. you know, to walk that the, the talk uh, to, to live out the gospel. We've been on that same plot of land since 1855. The first building was 1869, I think I want to say. And since the inception of our parish, we have been the hands of Christ to the community of downtown Atlanta. And so know that you are, are welcome there and that we would love for you to be a part of it, either just to come and worship with us or to serve in some way, uh, just to be a part of the community and realize that that vibrancy of faith is still there um, and that community of love is still, in fact, present. And... Um, and yeah, just to know that that we're loved. There was one thing that I did want to correct. We we have our pash our, our our parishioners. We have a number of people that do walk in in the pride parade. What we do as a, as a parish itself is we have a stand and we give out water, mm. and it's that hospitality of Christ. And I think that's one of the it's it's not a, a correction, but it's like a I want to emphasize that like we are there to particularly to be that loving witness and to welcome people to come back and to let people encounter our parishioners and say we want you to come back like free catholic hugs right um <laughs> and like that's a good thing um because so many people have been wounded by the church mm. and so i think that like that same idea like that's what we try to do and so i wanted you to kind of kind of hear that as well i think it's an important thing that that that's what we try to do at the church we want to welcome people back and let them know that that when they come there that they're home and that they, they're loved i love what you said about um you know, if you don't feel comfortable there, find another church, yeah. find another place where you feel comfortable. And I bet that's that's really important. I've been in several churches trying to find where my spot is. And I, um, I'm, uh, I have a broadcasting degree. I love public speakers, which is why, you know, where all of this was born out of. I get very, um, like, so di so dialed into the, the speaker and how and and the message works, but I don't necessarily feel at home. Sure, there, you know, like I love the message, but um, in in certain places. So so it's interesting, and I'll I'll kind of leave you on this that I've always said this because I feel like I'm pretty wound tight, and you know the people in church that they put their arms up, <laughs> sure, and they close their eyes, the charismatics, yes, yes, and they're you know like. One day, I, I could never imagine myself being in a position to be that free. And my goal is to be that free one day, Absolutely. to be that moved, you know? I think it's a cool thing. I, I think the other thing, though, is that um, to never try to compare yourself to somebody else. The only person that you can kind of strive to be is 
a better version of who you were yesterday. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think it's an awesome thing to want to be You're able right, to be but so But I still want to be free. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes. But you know what? If you never get moved to that, that's okay. Just as long as you're growing towards that. And yeah. I think that's an important thing to know yourself too. <laughs> that, that's like my benchmark is like whenever I could put, throw my arms out. the Jesus hands, you're good. That's right. <laughs> yeah, maybe one day. Well, thank you so much, Father you're very Dennis. welcome. This was great to chat with you. Thank, thank you. you so much. You're very welcome. God bless you. Thanks for listening to my chat with Father Dennis. If you'd like to learn more, I've linked info on the Catholic Shrine of the Immaculate Conception in the show notes. He also has his own podcast called Brewing Ardor that you can check out some of his past messages. If you think this episode could be moving to someone you know, please share it. And please also consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I read every word. As always, thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week.